0: So, so, so no, 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 no. We, we are uh, starting uh, a new series today, yeah. it's called God, God We're does, does, does We're going to walk it. through the, 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 the book, the prophetic book, 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 book. book, the back of the, the, the book, back. the November. back of the book. I think it was Monday, I said, start the series and preach and talk on the book of the book. You know what I why? And, and it's totally like, totally. The all all they've learned. My, My love is so bad. Yeah. And, <laughs> him and him, he's super excited about, well. well. you know, you know, know, you know talked to the talk. Disgusting. He said, wow. But he said, uh, he said, it's a difficult book. He said, it's a difficult book. to does And I said, well, I don't know. For sure. But here's what I think. Sometimes the most difficult text. Heal the most Heal the biggest biggest and a back that probably give me that kind that kind of, that that kind of thing so we're going to spend some time together the next weeks walking through the back I love the of the back a back it's cool I want to give you a little bit of background information first on the back <laughs> <laughs> Like, 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 weird, weird about. About like yes, when, first of all, I guess, was the fact that it was, written, written, it was written, written in the neighborhood neighbor. 600 years, uh, years before, uh, about, about, about 600 years, Bout years Bout before Christ, Christ wise, r- right, his birth and subsequent crucifixion of resurrection. And kind of Because it was written sometime before 586 BC when Jerusalem fell down. Jerusalem, and we know that before that happened, we looked back I can that, like that, we feel like This describes a time when a guy named was king of Judah. So, so was So, sometimes about six, nine, ten of DC 590. He was Your time. No, no. That's what he was, was. was. And Jehoiakim was w- uh, terrible. His, his government w- was corrupt. He put himself, built himself a Trump Tower of Israel, Israel's last house. He built massive uh, super, super amazing ma- power. power. There was wickedness. There was wickedness everywhere. There was immorality everywhere. There was injustice all over the place. These were extremely, extremely desperate times for the people of Judah. And out of all of that despair that was happening. Uh, come, comes the come, come, come the back of and, and today, today we're going to start, start in any of, of, of the book in the beginning, beginning, of chapter 1. We're going to look at the first 4 verses. should be on your screen. The oracle of the back of the He said, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you not hear or cry aloud and you will not Why do you may be Why do Destruction and violence are forming. Strife and contention arise. So, the, so law the law of We surround the righteous justice for perverted The oracle that the and that, that word is is hundreds of times in the test u- of the Y'all want we think that we know. No, 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 no. kind of passage in the Bible that really gives us an idea. He understand what the prophet really is. Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. And the content of Exodus 7, 1, is that God told Moses. Moses did a free, slave place. God told him he was going and been behind. He was obedient. And God, God tells, him tells him to go back to Egypt to lead the Hebrews out of slavery. It's a big deal. Like he tells Moses to go back. I need you to go back. I need you to free them out of slavery. And Moses is complaining. And Moses is whining. And Moses is fighting that call because Moses has a speech impediment. Some thing was, 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 he had, he was slow of speech, the, uh, the text says. And so he, something was with the way that he spoke. And God responds to Moses whining about that by telling him that his brother Aaron, Aaron was Moses' brother, he says, I'm going to have Aaron speak for you to Pharaoh. And so in Exodus 7, 1, Aaron is called Moses' prophet because Aaron speaks on behalf of Moses. And so the point here is, y'all, the central function of a prophet is not to tell the future. That's what we kind of think. Prophet, he tells the future. That's not the central function of a, of a prophet. The central function of a prophet is to declare the word of God, period. That is what they do. And so verse 1 tells us, verse 1 of Habakkuk, tells us that Habakkuk had a vision, and his vision is a burden that he has got to unload on the people. His vision leads to proclamation. And we got to understand, y'all, that... that That prophets are not just visionaries. And prophets are not just seers. They're also preachers. That boldly. Boldly declare the word of God to the people. And so Habakkuk is God's spokesman. Who sees a vision. And then he announces it to the people of God. And ultimately to the world. And so a lot of times too. Prophets. They're just not that popular in certain circles. Now a major point Uh, Right at the beginning here is that God does not ever, 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 ever leave himself without a witness. He never leaves himself without a witness. We see that truth throughout. It's woven throughout the scriptures. People are called and raised up to be a witness for him. And so he never leaves himself without a witness. Acts chapter 14 is one of the... Where we can kind of find that truth. In verse 16 of Acts 14 it says, In past generations he, God... He, God, allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. It's kind of like he said, all right, y'all want to do this and that? I'm going to let you go do whatever it is you want. It's just like when Israel wanted a king. They said, all the other nations have a king. We want a king. God said, you don't need to have a king. And they said, but we want a king. And he said, but you don't need to have a king. And they said, but we want a king. And he said, okay. Like, we do that with our children sometimes. You know, you wanted this and this and this. Well, okay, you're on your own. And so, but he never leaves himself without a witness. And so he says, in past generations, he... He, God, allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness. In Judah at the time, there was a great crusade of evil and and of wicked, but God, like this this heavenly chess champion, had already set up his uh, counter move in the person uh, and the prophet of Habakkuk. And God continues, y'all, to act that way. He continues throughout history to do that. 18th century England, society in England in the the 1700s, in the 18th century, was marked by violence and lawlessness and decadence. There was rampant uh, inhumanity. There was cruelty to children. There was cruelty, crazy cruelty to uh, the mentally ill. There was unbelievable gambling. There was prostitution everywhere. A guy named John Wesley called London the sink of all corruption. Things looked hopeless in England at the time, but God raised up a man named George Whitfield and John Wesley and Charles Wesley to do what? To thunder the gospel across England and then into the American colonies. Those three men were <clears throat> were integral, vital components to what we call the, the the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening in the 1730s and 40s in America and in England that saw hundreds of thousands of people get saved. God never, ever leaves us without a witness. And in the world today, if you look at what's going on in the world today, it is easy, like it's so easy, to want to just crawl in a hole and, and, and just kind of check out. And when we do that, unfortunately, often we conclude that God is not working in the world. And that is very much off track. Because God does not leave us without a witness, ever. So in the days of Jehoiakim, the king, God raises up Habakkuk to proclaim his word. Look at verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? So Habakkuk begins this with a complaint. You should have this in your worship, God. A complaint about unanswered prayer. A complaint about unanswered prayer. And that complaint is aimed directly at God. He is pulling it back and firing an arrow at God, whining and complaining about, uh, an un- about unanswered prayer. It's like, how long is he going to have to cry out to God and God not hear him? Now, complaints in that day, throughout Israel's sort of history, there was not an uncommon kind of prayer. That was not an uncommon kind of genre of prayer look at David in Psalm 55 he cries out to God attend to me and answer me I am restless in my complaint and I moan that's in Psalm 55 too in prayers of complaint the words they're not necessarily a lack of faith but they're turning um, they're turning our hearts to God towards God and just pouring out our soul confessing our negative thoughts, confessing our pain, confessing our darker emotions is not necessarily a sign of unbelief, but it's an acknowledgement of a journey. And y'all, it is a journey that every one of us are walking through life. And that journey often, often is super hard. It can be painfully difficult. It can be very, very tough. So this is an acknowledgement of this journey where we Allow God to change us. We allow God to transform our hearts a little bit. Have you ever walked outside, something's going on in your life, and you walked outside, because I can tell you I have, and I walk out the door and I look up and I'm like, enough. Like, enough. I've had enough. Whatever it is, I get it. I'm telling God, I get it. You can stop now because it's enough. Have you ever done that? Have you ever, even, even if you hadn't done it, have you ever felt like doing it? I mean, I would imagine everybody has. I want you to hear what was scrawled on the wall in a cellar, on the cellar wall, the the concrete wall in Cologne, Germany, during World War II. This was kind of scratched on the wall with a rock. And it was a cellar in Cologne where uh, this family was hiding Jews during World War II. And here's what was written on that wall. It said, I believe in the sun, even when it is not shining. I believe in love Even when I don't feel it, I believe in God even when he is silent. And whoever wrote that, whoever wrote that was just pouring her heart out, pouring her soul out, crying out to God that in the seemingly endless, endless suffering, she still believed. So Habakkuk here is questioning and he's complaining and he's questioning this lack of response by God to the violence, to the adversity, to the, to the injustice that is just running all over his people. Now understand, these are his people in Judah. This is Habakkuk's folks. How is it that God can just idly sit by? That is what Habakkuk is, is kind of questioning. How, how is, he, is he at work or is he not at work? How can he just sit there and do nothing? Lord, he says, Lord, how long shall I cry... How long shall I cry out for help and you will not hear, he says. How long am I supposed to wait? I'm dying here. You can hear Habakkuk saying that. How long How long am I supposed to wait? How long am I supposed to sit here? And so again, these cries out to God like this that we would probably call complaining, is not a new thing for the people of Israel. David, again, wrote in Psalm 13. Just listen to these words. They mimic Habakkuk's words. How long, O Lord, will you forgive me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long, David says, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Habakkuk says in verse 2, he's using uh, uh, the Lord's personal covenantal name, Yahweh. And you see that in your Bibles when it's translated uh, Lord in all capital Letters. What's behind that is the Lord's covenant name. So Habakkuk is is part of this covenant community. Habakkuk is a believer, and so it's kind of shocking when you think about uh, his his prophecy. At least these first three or four verses, they sound like an accusation, right? It's almost dis, it's almost disrespectful because he says, "You will not hear, and 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 you will not save." So he is accusing the Lord of abandonment. Really that is what he's doing. He's, he's like there's even violence and you're not doing anything about it. And so the question for, for God from Habakkuk is how can you keep silent when this savagery is happening all over Jerusalem and all over J- Judah and Jerusalem? And y'all it's the same thing that we asked today. It is the exact same thing we asked today. I was working on this message Tuesday, uh, in my office on the other side, about one o'clock, and I get to this to verse two, and I'm thinking, okay, I wonder what the headlines of the day are. This is truth. One o'clock Tuesday, Tuesday afternoon, I just went to Google and I said news of the day, and let me read to you what the news of the day was. Tuesday at one o'clock, China reports most coronavirus deaths in one day, boat capsizes in Bangladesh killing 15 refugees, pedophile writer on trial. Syrian rebels shoot down government helicopter counterattack, kill civilians, including children. Details emerge from mass shooting in Thailand that killed 29. On and on and on. I could do that for 10 more minutes. On and on and on and on and on on, the way that the world looks. So Habakkuk goes on in verse 3. He says, why do you make me see iniquity? Why, Lord, do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So he had complained about um, about the unanswered prayer. And here he is complaining about his vision. And the text tells us he saw three pretty nasty things. He saw iniquity and wrong. He saw destruction and violence. And then he saw strife and contention among his people. So he saw the The consequences of all of this bad uh, stuff that was going on. And Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim's guys were certainly big time guilty of oppression. They were guilty of forced labor. They were guilty of physical violence. The prophet Jeremiah who was preaching at the same time uh, that Habakkuk was in chapter 22 of Jeremiah. He's talking about this king Jehoiakim. He says, but you have, this is in verse 17 of chapter 22 of Jeremiah. He says, but you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain. He says, you have eyes and heart only for the shedding of innocent blood. This is Jeremiah talking about this king. And for practicing oppression and violence. He was a bad dude. He tried to kill Jeremiah. He killed a prophet named Shemiah. He was persecuting Habakkuk at the time. And from Habakkuk's perspective, y'all, the way that Habakkuk was looking at this, the reason that all of this situation existed, the iniquity and the wrong and the oppression, all of that was because God had not jumped in and said whose side he was on. So he's complained about this unanswered prayer. He's complained now about his vision. And in verse 4, Habakkuk complains about injustice. He says, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. That verse begins with so, or therefore. So because of all this junk, all this sinful activity, all the oppression, all the violence, all the persecution, all the corruption, the craziness that's taken place in Judah, here's the consequences, Habakkuk says. And the first is that the law is paralyzed. The law is paralyzed, This is the Hebrew word that's used there. In Genesis chapter 45, Jacob's sons, you got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's sons tell their father that Joseph is still in Egypt. And Jacob's response to their message in verse 26 is that his heart became numb or paralyzed. It's the same word that is used in Habakkuk. So his heart became numb or paralyzed, for he did not believe them. Jacob's heart just became cold, it became numb, it became paralyzed, and that's what's happening to the law. That's what's happening to the Word of God in Judah. It's gotten cold, and it's gotten numb, and it's been paralyzed, and it's having little or no effect on the society. The Word of God is having little or no effect on the society in Judah. Does that sound familiar? That was a yes or no question. The word of God almost seems irrelevant to our culture today, to our society today. It seems like it's not having, um, it's not having much of an effect on the daily lives and the way that society works. And the words "and justice go goes never goes forth" is tied in in the second part of verse uh, four, at the beginning of the second line. And justice never goes forth is tied to the paralyzation of. The law. When God's word, when the law, when the scripture, when the Bible becomes numb, God's justice gets kicked to the curb. And it's not applied to society. Without the word of God, think about it. Without the word of God, without God's law, what is the basis of any justice whatsoever in society? Without God's law, where does right and wrong come from? Where does good and bad come from? Where does truth and falsehood come from? come from there is no objective moral standards without the word of God we're left to to all kind of other things to determine it whether it is tolerance or diversity or my own personal or the tyranny of the majority Uh, if a society dictates what is right and wrong the society is bent towards evil right this is where moral absolutes are this is It it, it dictates what is right and wrong, despite the way I feel, despite the way I vote, despite any of that. This is an objective moral standard. Things that are right or wrong across all time and across all culture, right? That comes from Scripture. And look, for Habakkuk, the reason that the law had been numbed, the reason that he says the law is been paralyzed and cold and ineffective and that the reason why justice is gone is because God's gone AWOL. That is what Habakkuk says. It's really all God's fault. That is 100% what Habakkuk is saying here at the beginning. And it is not hard, y'all. It is not hard to go down the road of believing that God has gone AWOL. That's when we believe he's gone silent uh, in answering our prayers and that he doesn't really care. But here's what we're going to see for the rest of today and in the coming weeks as we walk through Habakkuk that that God does care, and that He is active in answering prayers. For Habakkuk, He just doesn't see it yet. He doesn't realize it yet. Y'all, in the in the first of His Narnia chronicles, it's called The Magician's Nephew. anybody ever read The Magician's Nephew? Um, C.S. Lewis tells a story, and the story is about a kid named Diggory, and Diggory's mother is dying in, in The Magician's Nephew. And when Diggory, uh, his mother's dying, when he first comes across this great lion, Aslan, he musters up some courage, Diggory does, and he asks, May I, may I, may I please, will you, will you give me some magic, will you give me some magic fruit of this country to make my mother well?" And it was like a gut-wrenching request. It was a prayer of desperation from Diggory. And yet at the time, the great lion appears to just completely blow it off. Diggory had been desperately hoping that the lion would say yes. And he had been horribly afraid that the great lion would say no. But he was totally taken aback when he didn't either. Right? He didn't either. When God is silent. In response to our deepest and most desperate prayers, neither saying yes and showing up with a miracle, or saying no with a clear sign that would at least let us know that he had heard it, it is natural for us to walk away and think and believe that God doesn't care at all. So, a little while later, in, uh, in The Magician's Nephew, Diggory dares to ask the lion again for help, and he thought of his mother. He's thinking of his mother. And, and he thought of the great hopes that he had had about his mother and how they all those hopes were dying away, and he gets this lump, Diggory does, a l- this lump in his throat, and tears are in his eyes, and he just busts out, but please, 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 won't you, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure my mother? Up until then, up until then, Diggory had been looking at the lion's feet. His head was down. He was looking at the lion's huge feet with the claws on them. Y'all if you're looking down at your feet your chin's on your chest. If you're in depression, if you're suffering from anxiety, if if you're just sad and life has beat you up, that's where your chin's going to be. And so Diggory at the time his chin is on his chest. He's looking down at the lion's feet. But in total despair now, he looks up at Aslan's face and he didn't even know when he was in the pit of despair looking down that that lion's face was right there but he, could, cause he couldn't see the lion's face because he was looking down and he looks up and when he looks up at, at the lion's face bent down right next to his wonder of wonders there were huge tears in the lion's eyes welled up in the lion's eyes and here's what C.S. Lewis said he said they were such big bright tears compared with Diggory's own, that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. Diggory's prayer is still unanswered, but every single thing had changed. Now he knew that this great lion, in whom all of his hopes were resting, Diggory's, all of his hopes are resting in that lion, now he knew that the lion cared. Y'all, when we lay a burden, at God's feet, and we're begging, and I'm talking about for real burden, legit burden. Not I, I want a, I want a new SUV because I don't like my car. I'm talking about a real burden, real struggle. When we lay that down at, at, at the Lord's uh, feet in prayer, and we're begging, please, 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 won't you, won't you, won't you? Can't you, can't you, can't you? And God seems silent, and we will immediately assume that he is unmoved if our chin is on our chest. But y'all if we'll get our chin off our chest we're going to see that he is leaning right down to us and wonder of wonders he's got a tear in his eyes. So how is it How is it that we should respond in seasons of silence? Three or four ways I'm going to give them to you quick. Number one is this. We pour out our heart and our unedited emotions to the Lord. Psalm 142 142 says, I pour out my complaint before him, I tell my trouble before him. And that word David used that is translated complaint in the Psalms is a little harsh and whiny as we understand the word complaint in English. It's also translated prayers or troubles or anxieties or troubled thoughts. So when David says, I'm laying it before you, I'm laying it before you, there's a sense of access to the Father that is inherent in the the very way that David says it. He's saying, I'm laying my burdens, I'm laying my troubled thoughts, I'm laying my anxiety into your hands. That's what David is saying to the Lord. And I'm telling y'all, He is available to you. You have, if you are a believer, you have access to Him. Don't you let the devil tell you that you don't have access to him. You do. He wants, desperately wants a relationship with you. An intimate, intimate, deep, heartfelt relationship with you. You know, the Lord has these huge, broad shoulders. They're there for you to lean on. He's got big ears that are there for you to talk to. They will. He, he will listen to you, and he will listen to it all, raw and unedited. You don't need to, like, uh, soften things up, you know, when you're talking to the Lord. Pour it all out, unedited, pour it out to him, number one. Number two is this. We need to continue to exercise faith and trust in God. Psalm 62, David, again, he's encouraging us to trust in him, trust in God, at all times, O oh people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Y'all, I heard a story about a friend of mine's mom and daddy. And, and uh, they were going to, uh, wanting to go to this convention. And it was a pastor kind of convention. The mom, the mom and daddy were going. And, and they were going to fly. The dad had set up so for them to fly in a little small Cessna. Like a two-seat or a four, I think a little four-seat um, single-engine or twin-engine little Cessna. And the husband had it set up. Well, he didn't talk about that with his wife first. Big mistake. So he, he, she says to him, I ain't going. And he's like, wait wait a minute. Why, what do you mean you're not going? Why, ain't you, why aren't you going to go? And she said, I'm not flying in that lawnmower to wherever it is they were going. And he says, the husband says to her, your faith is too small, honey. And she says, no, the plane's too small. <laughs> so, 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 but they really wanted to go, right? And so they end up. Flying commercial, you know she won. Of course she won. So they fly a commercial, and 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 here's what uh, what what he said. He said her faith grew because the object, the size of the object of her faith grew. Her faith grew because the object of her faith grew. Do y'all get that? You think about that. The object of her faith determined. The amount of faith she had. The, uh, the, the size of, of, of the object of the faith is directly related to how much we can trust and how much that we can believe. And the God that I know is ginormous. That's not a word, but that's, that's one of my words. He is huge. He is so much bigger than any trouble, any despair, any pit, any problem any, I don't care, y'all, what the problem is. He is so much bigger than all of that. And as we sit here today, you need to right-size God. You need to right-size Him. Because me and you, are our troubles are not so big that He can't handle. Don't you put Him in that little box and, and listen to what the devil is saying that He can't handle it because He can. We're talking about trusting a God who just spoke everything into existence. Everything that we see, everything that we don't see, He just spoke it into existence. He is so worthy of your trust. He is so worthy of your praise. He is so worthy of of all the glory that you can give Him despite the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Do you get that? Despite the circumstances. Don't let your circumstances determine who God is. Because who He is is independent of your circumstances. He is bigger than all of that. So we have got to trust in him. Number two, number three is this. We confess our doubts. We confess our our disappointments and we confess our struggles. Just like the man did in in Mark chapter 9 with Jesus. This man brought his demon-possessed son to the disciples. Son is demon-possessed. He brings him to the disciples, Jesus guys, and he's like, man, y'all got to do something about this. And, but they can't do anything. They didn't do anything. They failed. So he says, well, you think the guy's doubting a little bit? I say, yes, of course he's doubting a little bit. You think he's skeptical? Of course he's skeptical. So he takes the son, uh, the demon-possessed boy, to Jesus. He's still doubting. He's still skeptical because Jesus' very own guys had failed to do anything about it. And so the unclean spirit that was in the boy sees Jesus, and the boy hits the ground, and he's convulsing. The father who is clearly skeptical, clearly uh, doubting, um, says to Jesus in verse 22 of Mark chapter 9, if you can do anything, think about that, he uses the word if, he's talking to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If, verse 23, Jesus said to him, if you can, you know when you read that you don't really read it that way. But that's the way it was said. Je- the guy says, if you can, and Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the fa- immediately means immediately. Immediately doesn't mean 20 minutes went by. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Like, what? I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus kind of forces in the conversation this guy to acknowledge that he, Jesus, was his only hope and I think the dude knew this somewhere in his head, but he wasn't sure that that hope was enough. And he wasn't sure that this Jesus guy was enough. Why? Because Jesus guys weren't enough because they didn't do anything about it. So he's coming into this conversation with Jesus, totally doubting, totally skeptical. Jesus declared that he had the power to heal his son, the man's son, if the man had faith. If you can't. Everything is possible for him who believes, Jesus declared. Now, Jesus did not mean, and don't go down this heretical road, Jesus didn't mean that miracles depend on the strength of the person's faith. Me and you, when we pray, in, in the midst of the fire, our prayers have always got to be with God's will in mind. The father, the kid's father, confessed his belief immediately. He did. He did. It sprang straight out of his heart, I believe. But then, because he was totally aware that he was an imperfect human being because his recent lack of faith, immediately recent lack of faith, had sort of proved it, so the father of the boy kind of asked Jesus to heal him first. He's like, whatever it is in me, Lord, whatever that is that doesn't believe, because remember what he said, I believe, help my unbelief. Right, I believe, help my unbelief. So he's saying, whatever it is in me that doesn't believe or doesn't want to believe, Lord, heal that first. My point is, y'all, it is okay to take your doubts to the Lord. Don't sit there and not do that. Right? So first of all, it's okay if you have doubts. Don't act like you don't have doubts. Everybody has doubts. Everybody has struggles. You take your doubts to the Lord. You take your faith struggle to the Lord. You take your disappointments to the Lord. Right? And often we're going to be, we, and, and, and it may be miss, um, the aim may be towards the wrong target, but don't act like that you've never felt like God has let you down. That's a lie. Take that to Him. Take all of that to Him. Again, His shoulders are big. He can hear and handle Every single thing that we take. So take it to him. Take it all to him. Right? Number three. And number four, last point, and I think this is kind of the point, uh, the whole point today is this. Me and you got to rest in the faithful love of our Heavenly Father. We have got to rest in the faithful love of our Heavenly Father. Why? Because he cares for us. Because he loves us. And we can rest in that. Psalm 119, verse 76. And it says this. Super simple. Now, super simple. But it says, talking about God, the psalmist says this. Let your steadfast love comfort me. Five or six super simple words. Let your steadfast love comfort me. There's a book. The name of the book was The Wisdom of Our Fathers. A guy named Tim Russert wrote this book, and he told a story in this book uh, about a, 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 a letter, a story really about a letter that was sent to him by an adult daughter who wanted to honor her uh, her elderly father. Here's what she said. I want to read you two paragraphs from um, from this book, ultimately from this this young lady. She said, My dad loved the fact that he had two daughters, and although we were by no means wealthy, he spoiled us as much as he could. He was a tailor who had come over from Italy as a boy. He and my mother worked hard every day in their little cleaning and tailor shop. He never said no to me, she said, even when he should have said no. She goes on and says, when my husband was deployed and I was pregnant, I lived with my mom and dad. And dad would come into my room in the morning with a cup of coffee for me. And he would come in again at night and kiss me goodnight. She said, I always pretended to be sleeping. He'd done this uh, when I was a child and he continued to do it as long as I was staying in his house. She says, there are a lot of great fathers out there, but mine could be tender and loving and caring and thoughtful without ever saying a word. Y'all, here's what I know. And I believe this to be an absolute truth in every one of our lives. The degree to which we perceive God as a loving heavenly father, like this girl did in this book, we will rest in his love for us even during the hard times. The the degree to which we perceive and understand and buy into and believe God as a loving heavenly father, we will rest in his love for us even during the hard times. The opposite of that is true too, though. If we do not perceive of God as a loving, heavenly, caring deeply committed father we will not rest in his love even when times are easy does that make sense we have got to have we got to right size him we got to uh, to rightly understand who he is we've got to rightly understand that even even if you don't think he is at work because he's not giving you this direct answer for whatever's going on in your life you can trust that if you'll get your chin off your chest that he's right there he is right there and he is weeping with you he is weeping with you because he cares and he loves you how is it that we can um, rest in the in the loving arms of our heavenly father how is it that he can be our heavenly father how is it that we can be his child how is it that we can be his, an heir of His? Of his? And the, all it is by saying yes, beginning by saying yes to His offer. How can we, how do we have the right to pour out our heart to Him? How, we have to have standing before Him. That's kind of a legal term. The lawyer in a courtroom has standing before the judge. It means the lawyer has a right to speak to the judge. He has standing If you are a believer, you have standing before a holy God to pour your heart out to Him. If you're not, you don't. And so it's got to begin with a relationship. He wants that relationship with you. He wants you to be His child. And so that's where it has got to begin, y'all. It's got to begin. And all it is is as simple as I repent. We were talking about this in in Life Track this morning. What does repent mean? It means, Lonnie said, to, to, to make an about face, to turn and go the other way. And that is what you're doing with you with the sin. I'm repenting of my sin. I'm not perfect after that. I'm going to mess up, no doubt. But I repent of that sin. And I believe what happened outside those gates in Jerusalem. I believe that he died on the cross to save me. And I'm going to confess that and ask him to come into my life and save me. That's it. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. And that is what it is. And so if that is you today, if you've never said yes I want to invite you to the cross. I want to invite you down here. And if you have stuff and junk in your life today that you need to pour out to him, stuff that you think, and it may be for years and years, you have cried, you have walked outside and said, enough, like if you've done that, I would say, come put it at the foot of the cross. He's big enough to handle that, right? He is. And he is doing and active, and you don't even know it. You don't even know that he's moving the pawns and the Rooks and all the little chess pieces around that table. He's moving them everywhere. And if you're a believer, all of that gets worked out for the good. Y'all get that? So it's got to begin, though, with saying yes to his offer. And so I would ask you, if y'all would close your eyes, bow your heads, and if y'all can turn the lights down a little bit. um, I would ask, uh, again, if you've got anything, any need to respond to the cross, I would say come down here. Not that you have to, but I would say come down here. So if this is you today and this is the first time and you're saying yes to that offer, let me, uh, I want you to kind of repeat this after me or say it along with me. Lord, let today be the day where I say yes to your offer. Today would be the day that I repent of my sin and I believe that you died on the cross to save me and I'm begging you to save me. And Lord, I do believe that. And if that's you, he saved you today. Lord, there's other folks in this room that maybe they've been believers for 25 years, but they're unpacking stuff in their lives that they have uh, doubted and that they have uh, maybe even blamed stuff on you. Maybe they've even confessed that, that it's your fault, whatever it is. And it may be sickness. It may be the sickness of a child. It may be a sickness of a parent. It may be their own sickness. Lord, but we trust that you're bigger than every single bit of that and that you can handle all of that. So, Lord, I pray for our church family. I pray for the the troubles that happen in our personal lives. Lord, I rejoice alongside of the, the folks in our church family when there is stuff to rejoice alongside. Lord, that is what a church family does. We lock arms together you tell us this. We lock arms together, we bear each other's burdens, and we celebrate the joys with each other. And we do all of that in your name. Amen.